It's Philosophy Talk. Nonviolent resistance is the most powerful weapon that oppressed people can use in breaking loose from the bondage of oppression. What can nonviolence really achieve in a violent world? What do we do when we hate? What do we do when we feel massive aggression? Our guest is renowned cultural critic Judith Butler. Do we simply act on it or act it out, or are there ways to cultivate aggression into nonviolent tactics? What's the aim of a revolution? What's the aim of radical actions? We want to build a different kind of world than the one that we live in. We want to build a less exploitative world, a less violent world, and we have to start to enact the principles that we hope to realize. The art of nonviolence. Coming up on Philosophy Talk. This is Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Except your intelligence. I'm John Perry. And I'm Ken Taylor. We're coming to you from the Marsh Theater in Berkeley, California. Our thinking originates at Philosopher's Corner on the Stanford campus across the bay. That's where Ken teaches philosophy. I taught there for 40 years. Right now, I'm a visitor here at Berkeley. And we'll try not to hold that against you, John. Welcome, everyone, to Philosophy Talk. Now, today, we're thinking about the art of nonviolence. Well, it's good that you call it an art, because it definitely must be an art. The trick is knowing when and where it will actually work, if ever. Yeah, it's worked just about everywhere it's been seriously tried, John. I mean, nonviolence brought down... Uh, Apartheid in South Africa, Jim Crow in the United States, and British colonialism in, in India. It works. Yeah, but it took violence to defeat the Nazis, Ken. It took violence to end slavery, and it took violence to free America from the British tyranny. So you got to admit, nonviolence has its limits. I don't have to admit any such thing. I don't admit any such thing. Look, violence just begets more violence. Only nonviolence can break that cycle. Well, tell that to those poor students who were mowed down by the Chinese government in Tiananmen Square. Where did the nonviolence get them? Dead. Yeah, but John, they did not die in vain. Their cause is seared in the memories of everybody who was alive at that time. I'm sure you remember those images. Their, their courage and sacrifice helped uh, open our eyes, the eyes of the whole world, to the true nature of the Chinese regime at that time. It was pretending to be liberalizing, but we, they opened our eyes to the truth. Did we need Tiananmen Square to learn that? Everybody knew that. Uh, but suppose that they had opted for armed resistance. Just imagine. What, what do you think would have happened? It would have been a nightmare. A lot more people would have died. The government would have been able to hide behind claims of needing to preserve and protect civil order. Yes, exactly. So now you're beginning to appreciate, I think, the real advantage of nonviolence over violence. What's that? Moral clarity, John. Oh, okay. Well, could you clarify moral clarity for yeah, me? Yeah, because nonviolence can achieve a degree of moral clarity that violence can never, ever hope to. Think of those civil rights protesters on that bridge in Selma being beaten by those racist cops with, with the whole world watching. The whole world. 
Under those circumstances, a person of goodwill had no choice. They had to stand with the protesters. Now, if those protesters had turned violent instead, the moral clarity of that moment would have been completely lost. Yeah, that's all well and good, Ken, but, but you're, you're assuming that there's people of goodwill off in the rafters waiting to have their consciousness awakened. But that's not always true. What if it's false? What if most people have made their peace with a system that is corrupt through and through? If they're willing to do anything to defend it and hold under their power and privilege, what, what then? Uh, still, nonviolence is the answer. Because then you take a page out of Gandhi's book. You make the system completely unworkable. You put body and soul in its way. You disrupt its economy, tie up its police force, clog up its jails, overburden its courts. But you do all of it nonviolently. Nonviolence worked sometimes. It worked in India because the Brits by that time were exhausted and they didn't have the stomach for more brutal oppression. Put body and soul in the path of oppressors who are more determined, who are made of sterner stuff, and you'll just get crushed bodies and souls. Well, I'm, I'm not going to deny that nonviolent resistance might not give a psychopathic tyrant like Hitler or Pol Pot, it might not give them the slightest pause. But I still think that even in such circumstances, it can send a morally clarifying message to those who side with that tyrant out of nothing but fear and intimidation. You can say, this is what you side with. Effective resistance isn't Twitter. It isn't sending messages. It's ending oppressive systems by replacing them with systems that are more just. And sometimes, all I'm saying, sometimes that takes violence. Yeah, but there's a false dichotomy in the background, John. Oppressive systems fail when people of goodwill stand their ground and make them fail. The moral clarity of the nonviolent resistance, you know what it does? It invites all people of goodwill stand here together. Violence almost always drives people apart, even people who might otherwise be allies. You've got to admit that. Well, look, and I, I don't want you to think I'm eager for more violence. I'm all for nonviolence when it works. More love, sweet love, that's what the world needs now. All I'm saying is we won't get it without a little armed insurrection here and there to sweep away some bad actors along the way. To quote uh, our beloved former vice president, all I'm saying is give violence a chance. <laughs> John, okay, come on. I admit that you're certainly not alone in thinking that nonviolence isn't always the answer. I mean, during the civil rights era, for example, the choice between violence and nonviolence, it actually sharply divided people who were equally devoted to the cause of improving the lives of black people. So we sent our roving philosophical reporter, Shuka Kalantari, to re-examine that debate. She files this report. It's 1972. Black Panther activist Angela Davis is in a California state prison. A journalist visits Davis behind bars and asks her, what do you think about violence? When you talk about a revolution, most people think violence without realizing that the real content of any kind of revolutionary thrust lies in the principles and the goals that you're striving for, not in the way you reach them. On the other hand, because of the way this society is organized because of the violence that exists on the surface everywhere. You have to expect that there are going to be such explosions. You have to expect things like that as reactions. You need to disperse immediately. If you are in the middle of the street, you are unlawfully assembled, you will be subject to arrest. Do it now. 
this idea of violence and nonviolence is we're not looking at it through the lens of the people that are experiencing the governmental violence. That's Erica Huggins, a professor at Laney College in Oakland, California, and a former member of the Black Panther Party. We live in a country that built its economic system on the owning of humans. I can't think of anything more violent. And so you can't expect that people will walk up to the, to the door of those stakeholders of violence and say, will you stop it, please? And then they do. They do not. So at some point, people make it their business to defend themselves from that violence. This desire to defend herself led Huggins to join the Black Panther Party when she was 18 years old. It was 1969. I decided to leave the Lincoln University campus in Pennsylvania where I was and drive across the country with John Huggins to join the Black Panther Party. John Huggins was Erica's husband. Later that year, he was killed during a protest at UCLA, allegedly by the FBI. Erica was pregnant at the time. Soon after, she moved to New Haven and became a leader in the Black Panther movement. A few years after that, she was charged with murder and spent two years in prison, mostly in solitary confinement. Those charges were later dismissed. It isn't that the Black Panther Party said or thought Nonviolence is not good enough. The principles that Martin Luther King studied from Mahatma Gandhi. It's beautiful and wonderful. And for the sake of love of the people, the Black Panther Party was formed. It's just that we also felt that we should defend ourselves if we're attacked. Huggins says the Black Panther Party was created because African Americans were being lynched beaten and killed on a daily basis. And some of that has stopped so that it looks like we're in a different era. And I think we buy into that. We believe that it's different because it's more uh, submerged in a way, but it's still there. It's not that submerged. In 2014, over two dozen unarmed people of color were killed by police. In 2015, the U.S. Attorney General came out with a report showing years of police bias in Ferguson, Missouri. Ferguson is not new. St. Louis has been that way ever since St. Louis was St. Louis. So we're always, we, the big we, is always shocked when the people stand up for their rights. Why are we so shocked? Huggins says the Black Panther Party was about dismantling systems, not harming individuals, but harming the systems that brought harm to them. Today, Huggins is a sociology teacher. She says there's hope. If states create regulations about how police officers behave, and if they have proper training, then maybe we can have real justice and real peace. Until then, Erica Huggins will continue to dismantle systems. But now, she'll do it from inside an Oakland classroom. For Philosophy Talk, I'm Shuka Kalantari.